Good morning again. Uh, I see a lot of folks out there, a few new faces that probably have never been to First Alliance Church before or maybe haven't been here in quite a while. Um, if you're brand new, I am Pastor Paul. I am the senior pastor here. And as far as you know, I always wear a tie every single Sunday morning. <laughs> At least two people came up to me today and said, we have a real pastor now. <clears throat> so there you go. Time, turn to Romans 10. The book of Romans Chapter 10. I want to start this morning by telling you a story that I have told you several times before. So if you've been here uh, for the last 20 years, you've probably heard it several times. But I need to fill in a detail or two in the story that I haven't told you before. It's actually the story of how I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Uh, it, was, it was way back when. Uh, it was close to the time of my ninth birthday. I can't remember if I was eight or nine, but it was right around that time. And I was in the fourth grade kids club, uh, Awana clubs, actually, for those of you who know what that is, at First Baptist Church of Enfield, Connecticut, just across the state line from our home. We lived in Massachusetts. And if you know anything about the Awana clubs, you know that you memorize a lot of Bible verses, and that's one of their big things. And I was really into memorizing the verses. I had no idea what any of it meant, but I was really into memorizing the verses. And on this particular night, I was memorizing Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. So five whole verses there, a lot, you know, for a kid in, in fourth grade to try to memorize, but I had worked real hard. Uh, let me go ahead and just read you the first two of these verses, Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10. It goes like this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I rattled these verses off to my leader, uh, Mr. Staples, uh, along with the next three verses. I, actually, I, there were only two uh, teachers or um, kids club leaders that I remember from, from those days back in Enfield, Mr. Wood and Mr. Staples. Those are my two teachers that I remember. Mr. Wood is actually Jenny Talman's brother, one of those weird uh, small world stories, true story. Um, uh, Mr. Staples, however, is the one that was, was leading our Awana club in fourth grade that night. And I rattled these verses off to Mr. Staples, and I probably got them close to word perfect, because I was pretty good at memorizing the verses. But um, he didn't look very impressed, because he knew that I was just rattling off these words with no real concept of what they meant at all, not to mention what they meant for me. And so he said, I'm not going to sign off on your verse until you memorize something else. And I thought that wasn't very fair, but he made me memorize something else. He made me memorize the story of the gospel, that Jesus had died for our sins, that he had been buried, that he had risen on the third day, and he added that one day Jesus was coming back to earth. Well, um, what was I going to do? I obediently memorized that, and I, I recited the verses to him again, and I recited to him what he had told me about Jesus, and Mr. Staples kind of rolled his eyes and said, all right, well, I guess I tried, and he initialed my section, giving me some valuable points toward the next ribbon or trophy or whatever I was going to get. It wasn't until a few days later I was lying alone in my bed one night, and it, that the relevance of this story for my life and for my sin suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks. I realized that those words all had meaning. They weren't just words on a page. And I called out to God to save me from my sins because I knew now the Holy Spirit had revealed it to me that night, that Jesus had died, he had been buried, he had risen again, and he was coming back for me, for me personally. And then I needed a Savior. And let me tell you something. If you were in the place right now where I was at that night, 
you know the story of what Jesus did. You've heard it a lot today already. You've probably heard it many, many times in your life. You may have been hearing it your whole life. You may have been in church your whole life, and it's now just common knowledge to you. But your heart has never been impacted by the life-altering truth that he did this for you, for you personally, out of his great love for you, and that you personally desperately need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, then I hope that you will do what I did that night and that you will cry out to God to save you from your sins and to bring you into an everlasting relationship with this God who loves you so much that he gave his only son so that you could be with him. You can do that even today. But you know, as I've gone back and I've reviewed that verse, Romans 10, 9, I've discovered something kind of interesting, kind of funny about it. I thought, you know, when I look at that verse... It doesn't have all the stuff in it that my leader made me memorize that night. It has only one part of it, the resurrection. That's all that's there, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And the verse seems to say, if I want to be saved, as far as the content of what I need to believe, it's that, it's the resurrection, just the resurrection. Now, if I looked at my Bible real carefully and I looked down in the notes of my trusty ESV study Bible, it basically tells me the same thing that Mr. Staples told me back in 1975, that you have to believe the whole gospel the whole story of what Jesus did, and that Paul is using the Easter event, the resurrection of Jesus, as a kind of shorthand for the whole gospel story. Now, I find this kind of interesting. And it becomes even more interesting when you discover that what Paul does here in Romans and just kind of using the resurrection as shorthand for the whole gospel is not very unusual. Specifically, if you read through the book of Acts, and you'll see all the, all the times that the apostles went out to different places. They went to Jews, they went to Gentiles, they went near and far sharing the gospel of Jesus and inviting people to come to know uh, their Lord and telling people what Jesus had done. Uh, everywhere they went, they, they told the story and they invited people to become Christians. But every time they did it, the resurrection was front and center. The resurrection was always front and center. The main point of Peter's sermon, the very first Christian sermon ever preached at Pentecost, was that the Jews had killed the miracle worker, Jesus of Nazareth, by the hands of lawless men, the Romans, but that God had raised him from the dead. And Peter goes on and says how David had predicted this resurrection a thousand years earlier in the book of Psalms. And that by raising Jesus from the dead, God was declaring that that Jesus was both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Christ. That was Peter's sermon. Then Stephen, the very first Christian to ever be killed for his faith, In his final sermon to the men who were about to stone him to death, he doesn't even mention that Christ died for their sins. He he accuses them of murdering Jesus. But then he ends his sermon by describing to them a vision that he's having in the moment right there. And he's standing there, staring at the risen Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, there he is. And then they killed him. Paul in Acts 17, he's speaking to the heathen philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. He skips the cross altogether. But he ends up by saying that the one true God will judge the world by one particular man, and we know this for sure because God raised that man from the dead. And in each case, the mention of the resurrection of Christ brings a definite response, a definite reaction. For some, it's guilt and repentance. For others, it's it's ridicule. For others, it's actually violence and and murder. For still others, the the resurrection of Jesus, hearing about that, is kind of like the crowbar that pries open their hearts and they want to hear more. 
It strikes me that, that when you and I think about sharing the gospel, maybe some of us do it actively, some of us don't think about it so much, or we don't do it so much, but we think about sharing the gospel with our friends, and maybe, maybe you'd be in a, a, in a situation where you only have a little bit of time, and you have to get across the gospel in one sentence, or kind of really fast, and, and you think, how would, I, how would I distill it down to its essence? I think we'd usually go a different way than the apostles would go. You know what we'd usually say? Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? That's what we'd say. And if we actually we're kind of sharing the the story of Jesus with someone and we forgot part of it, what part do we usually forget? Yeah, we're like, and then he died and we talk all about his death and what it means and and then we say, oh, oh yeah, wait, there's something else. Like three days later, he didn't stay dead, by the way, you need to know this, he rose from the dead. Like some kind of gospel footnote, right? The apostles never did it that way. Now, they certainly understood the importance of Christ's death, but if there was one part of the story they absolutely didn't want to leave out, it was the resurrection. Why? What is so powerful about the resurrection that can, it can effectively serve as shorthand for the whole gospel? That's the angle I want to look at the gospel from this morning. I want to look at the gospel through the, the, the story of our salvation through the window of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's ask this question. Why is the resurrection so important, so central to the gospel presentations that we see in the Bible? And therefore, why does it need to be central to the way that we understand the gospel and maybe the way that we share the gospel with others? Why is the resurrection so important, so central in the gospel presentations we see in Scripture? And therefore, why does it need to be front and center in the way we understand the gospel? In the time we have left, I want to try to answer that question in three ways. And these answers are pretty closely related, but they're also distinct. The first reason is simply this. The resurrection is compelling. The resurrection is compelling. In other words, it gets your attention. If, if you really understand the claim that is being made about Jesus, it will grab you and it will not let you go until you do something about it. On its face, the resurrection is easily the most compelling part of the gospel story. Let me put it this way. If you want to grab someone's attention and get them to take notice, is it more compelling, does it draw them in more, to engage them in a discussion about the meaning of someone's death or to point to that person's empty grave? Paul wrote this book of Romans about 25 years after Jesus died. And when he did that, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross was common knowledge to everybody. So if you were a Christian back then, in AD 50, whatever, and you, you, wanted, you wanted to share the gospel with someone, you can go up to them and say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. And they'd be like, so? I mean, a lot of people die on crosses. Like, Thousands of people have died on a cross. Why are you telling me about this particular guy who died on a cross? Well, let me tell you why. Because he died for our sins. He was punished in our place for our sins to forgive us. And if this person, well, for some people that's just nonsense. But if this person, if the Holy Spirit's been kind of working on this person a little bit and he's, he started to get convicted about his own sin and his own need for forgiveness and that he needs to be right with God, then that might make a little bit more sense to him. In fact, it might be a little bit compelling and he might really want that to be true. But how does he know? You know? How do you know it's true? Here's why. Here's the best part. You know how? Because God raised this guy from the dead. He's not dead, he's alive. What? What do you mean he's alive? He's alive. Wait, no, I know what you mean. You mean like he's, he died, but he's still alive in spirit. 
or he died, but he's still alive in the hearts of his followers. Is that what you're telling me? No. I'm telling you that he walked out of the grave. And like 500 different people saw him, and you can still talk to them because they're still around and they're still around today. He spoke to them on the road. He ate a fish dinner with them that night. And then a few days later, he ate a fish breakfast with some of them. I guess he really likes fish. But he showed them the, the, the holes, the scars in his hands where the nails had been driven through when he was executed. He actually physically rose from the grave. And 40 days later, he actually physically ascended up to the sky in view of a whole bunch of people. And now he is seated at the highest place of authority at the right hand of God. Now, that's a different kind of claim. That's a historical claim about an event. If you share that claim, you're not advancing an idea. You're reporting an event. Now, people can choose to believe or disbelieve that event, but it's a verifiable claim. Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. You know the word um, martyr? The word that means somebody who dies for their faith? It's a Greek word, and we, our, our word martyr actually comes from the Greek word martyros. You know what it means? Doesn't mean person who died. Doesn't mean philosopher or preacher. It simply means witness. It just means witness. Somebody who was witnessing to something. Someone who saw something and was telling people about it. And a whole lot of people died in the first century, including all but one of Jesus' disciples, not because they were insisting on some new philosophy of life or some novel theological idea, but because they refused to deny an event that they had witnessed and they knew was true, and that event was the physical resurrection of their Lord. Yes, a lot of people have died on crosses. It's true. But only one ever came back from the dead. And once that fact really hits you where you live, or as Paul says in Romans there, once you believe that with your heart, then it is no longer possible for you to believe that the death of Jesus was just the execution of some misunderstood traveling teacher. There's got to be more to it than that. If you're convinced in your very heart that the physical, historical, actual resurrection of Jesus really happened, then everything else follows. You can't not believe the rest of the story. The apostles majored in the resurrection. Why? Because it was compelling, because they knew that was the part of the gospel story that really grabbed people, and they knew it because that was the part that had grabbed them. Because they were giving up. They were without hope. They were about to to just throw in the towel after seeing their Lord crucified, but all of a sudden, he was alive again. That was impossible. But it was true. That was all that mattered. And now they had to believe all the other impossible things that Jesus had said. Which is the second reason the resurrection was always front and center for these guys. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ was telling the truth about himself and about everything. Remember back in like science class in 10th, 11th, 12th grade, you did chemistry and and you were mixing acids and bases, and you had the little titration set and all that. And, and it was, they, were showing, they were telling you that, that, that the acid could neutralize the base or the base could neutralize the acid. And you couldn't really see anything happening, but you knew if you put a drop of that special phenolphthalein liquid in there, and if something turned from purple to clear, you said, oh, wow, it's true. It really works. Or in physics, 
When, when your physics professor, like mine did, he got a, a bicycle tire and he started spinning it like this and he was sitting on, on one of those revolving seats and he said, if, I'm, if what I'm telling you about rotational motion and torque is correct, then if I do this with this bicycle tire, my seat should start spinning around in the opposite direction. You're like, yeah, right. And then he does this and he starts spinning around like that. I guess it's true. There's some evidence there. This is what the resurrection is. It's that kind of proof. Jesus had done so many miracles during his earthly ministry You'd think that would be proof enough, but you know what? The religious leaders of his day, the people that were the big influencers, they refused to believe him, which was not logical, really, because if you think about it, these guys believed in the whole Old Testament, and there's a lot of crazy stuff in the Old Testament. The sun stopping in the sky for six hours. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens in the Old Testament. They believed, but they refused to believe Jesus. And he called them on it at least one time. He said, look, he did this a couple really powerful miracles, and they looked at him and they said, we demand that you give us a sign from heaven. And when I'm reading that, I'm like, what, what else do you want to see, guys? But Jesus said, you know what? He, fed, he was fed up with them. He said, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. But I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm giving you one sign, and here's the sign. You guys all believe that 750 years ago, give or take, some guy named Jonah was swallowed by a huge fish. And he spent three days and nights in the belly of that fish, and then he got vomited up, and he shared... God's word with the Ninevites and they repented. You know that story? Yes, they believe that. Jesus said, you know what? I'm gonna get, here's your sign. Just like Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights and then I'm coming back. Amen. So, if, and by the way, Pharisees and scribes, the people of Nineveh, the most evil people in the world back then, repented when Jonah came back and preached to them. If I come back from the dead in three days, do you dare not believe what I'm saying to you? Do you dare to reject my word? And how sad it was that those same leaders, after Jesus really did rise from the dead, were the ones most anxious to cover up the resurrection. Paying off the guards to say they fell asleep. Even running interference with the Roman governor, who they hated, to keep to keep the guards out of trouble. Why did they do all this? Why? Because if they admitted it, then they had to admit that everything Jesus had said was true. Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus was right about everything. Like what? Well, that every word he spoke came right from God. That compassion and mercy were more important to God than religious rituals, even sacrifices. They hated that one. That a person could look like he was living a really clean life on the outside and still be full of sin on the inside. That all of their meticulous observation of the law could never get them into heaven. That they needed salvation. They needed salvation just as much as that all those openly messed up people that they looked down on as low-life scum. That heaven was for tax collectors and prostitutes and not just for upright, morally excellent people. You see, if you're depending on your own goodness this morning, your own virtue, the strength of your own character, to make you right with God, then Easter is actually really bad news for you. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus was telling the truth, and Jesus said that the only people that find salvation are the ones who admit that they really need it. The one who gets saved, the one who goes to heaven, is the one who beats his chest and mourns over his sin and cries out to God for undeserved mercy, not the one who congratulates himself on doing pretty well. Because the one who has confidence in his own goodness will never do what it says in Romans 10.9. He will never confess Jesus as Lord. Why not? Because that person deep down really believes that he's qualified to be his own Lord. 
Why is the resurrection so front and center in the gospel presentations in the Bible? Yes, because it's attention-grabbing. Yes, because it certifies as true everything that Jesus ever said about himself and about everything else. And I think there's one more reason that the whole gospel direction. In the very next verse, Romans 10.10, Paul says this. He says, with the heart we believe and are justified. With the heart we believe, your King James will say, with the heart we believe unto righteousness. I want you to pretend you've never heard that before and consider what he's saying. Can that really be true? Can that really be can, can a sinful person, someone like you or me, a broken person, a fearful person, a greedy person, a lustful person, an angry person, a lazy person, an irritable person, an unreliable person, maybe even a person that has a whole truckload of, of shameful failures and a whole closet full of skeletons, can that person really be justified? In other words, put it this way, in the moment right after death, can a person like that really stand before God on that day and have God say to him, not guilty. You are righteous. You are holy. And I accept you. Does that really make sense? Does that, oh, and by the way, how often do you think about your death? How often do you think about the day that you die? That experience. And what is it like for you? Most of history's great thinkers and philosophers have recognized that one of the great existential problems facing all human beings is how to deal with the knowledge of our own death. You know, the animals go through life and they die eventually, but they don't know it's coming. We do. We know we're going to die. In fact, some, some philosophers and some, some teachers have said that's basically the only problem. And some have gone so far as to say lately that it is impossible to live a meaningful and authentic life unless you first come to terms with your own death. There's been a lot of psychological research done in this area, and in recent years, I've led to a whole field of study I've been reading about that's called TMT, which stands for Terror Management Theory. Terror Management, so the theory says this, since we're all afraid of death, we're terrorized by it, the theory goes, how does that affect, how does that fear affect the way we view life, and how does the way we cope with that fear of death determine our behavior in certain circumstances? And they've found some very interesting results here. One study found that judges... Judges that have recently been reminded of their own death and their own mortality tend to hand out harsher sentences for minor offenses to other people. For other people, just projecting the word death in front of them for a quarter of a second on a a screen raises their anxiety level significantly and affects their near-term behaviors and attitudes. And here's how people change. It says, in general, thinking about their own death makes people more defensive, more protective of themselves, their money, and their reputations, and more suspicious of others. In other words, most people don't deal with the idea of their own death very well. The anxiety makes them mean and unloving. This research also assumes, of course, that one way people deal with the fear of death is to turn to religion. And so they've tried to figure out if that works. And they found that it's somewhat effective. And they found a couple of interesting things. First of all, they found out that people who are really committed to their religion tend to have lower death anxiety than people that are only partially committed to their religion, but they found something else even more interesting, and that is that Christians have an abnormally low fear of death. Meanwhile, Muslims, who also believe in one God, have an abnormally high fear of death. 
compared to other people, and that the Muslims, along with the Christians who aren't really serious about their Christianity, have even a higher level of death anxiety than irreligious people who don't believe in God at all. Strange, right? And as the, the, as according to the article I read, the researchers are puzzled by this. And they have concluded that more research is necessary to find out why this is. Well, allow me to humbly suggest something that might point them in the right direction. If you go through life, if you go through life like most religious people do, including many who call themselves Christians, believing in God, believing in right and wrong, believing in some kind of afterlife and therefore some kind of judgment to determine what happens to you in the afterlife, and the way that works, the way that works is if you do enough good things and if you do maybe enough religious things in life to counterbalance the bad things, say enough prayers, perform enough good deeds, recite enough creeds and confessions, give enough money to the poor, whatever it is, then God, on the day of judgment, will hopefully decide to cut you some slack and let you into heaven. Frankly, I cannot think of a better recipe for death anxiety, can you? To spend your whole life worrying, and rightly so, that you haven't done enough. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity says this. It says this for the Christian, for the one trusting in Jesus Christ. That on that day, when you die, and when you stand before God, you don't rise or fall on your own merits. You have someone standing there with you. You have someone to stand in for you and substitute his record for yours. And that person is Jesus Christ. But here's the question. Can you trust him? Can you trust him? Is he good enough? His righteousness, his obedience, all that stuff, is it enough to pass the test? Yes. How do you know that? I know it because he already aced the test. How do you know that? God raised him from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him, Peter says. Why? What did God say to Adam in the garden? On the day that you sin, you shall surely die. Sin always results in death. So it follows that if someone has defeated death, that means they must have also defeated sin. Amen. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Romans 4.25 says he was raised to life for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15 says the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's at the end of a chapter that's all about the resurrection. The reason the resurrection of Jesus can stand for the whole gospel is that it proves once and for all that our sin is paid in full. And on that day when we stand before God, we don't need to be shaking in our boots hoping that he'll cut us some slack. We're standing there instead covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ knowing that we will never be condemned for our sin because someone who had no sin at all has already been condemned in our place and a holy God will not demand two payments for the same sin. We're free. Free to enter into everlasting life in the presence of a holy, glorious, and loving God with no fear of condemnation or rejection ever again. The other shoe is never going to drop. It fell on Jesus. And this is the ultimate cure for death anxiety. Now, have you found that to be the case in your life and in your mind and your heart? Or are you still pretty terrified by the prospect of death? I'm not saying do you not worry about it some. There's a fear that we all have of the unknown, and death is an unknown for us. So yeah, there's apprehension there for sure. 
But is your belief in the resurrection of Jesus just a theoretical concept in your head? Or has the reality of it hit you in the heart and delivered you from that death anxiety that can make you self-protective and suspicious and irritable? Because now you're free. You're free to spend eternity in the presence of our Lord and to live forever. And you're free to give yourself away to others now. Because you know that your life is hidden with Christ in God. It says in Colossians. You know, I, I still remember when we're kids, we, we learn things so well. It's harder to memorize verses today for me for some reason. Maybe it's because I've got like seven or eight different versions of the Bible in my head. But I remember that, that first verse I had to memorize way back when it was on third grade when I was in Awana Clubs and I was in the Pals, if you ever were a Pal. And the Pals key verse was Romans 4 5. And I think I still remember it word perfect from the King James. It went like this. But to him that worketh not, but believeth in him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know what? When I was eight years old, I didn't understand a word of that verse. But over time, I've come to understand it a little better. Here's the gist. Our little grandson has developed an interesting pattern. When he gets scolded or disciplined or corrected for doing something wrong, he often responds by getting kind of emotional and saying, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> so he'll be like, Reuben, get your hands out of the butter. I'm not a bad guy. Just get your hands out of the butter. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a bad guy. And of course, the typical parental response to this is what? You're not a bad guy. You just did a bad thing. You're not a bad guy. You just made a bad decision, Right? I didn't say you were a bad guy. You just, you just made a bad choice. And kids need to hear that, I suppose. But oh, how I wish. How I wish that a two-and-a-half-year-old could understand the concept of original sin. Don't you? Because what's the truth? The truth is, we're all bad guys. And when I say that, hear me saying it the right way. We weren't created to be that way. God didn't make us to be bad guys. But sin has so deeply impacted us that it is now part of our very nature. Sin is not a foreign thing that comes from the outside. It springs up out of our very heart. And the biggest reason that you and I sin is because we're sinners. And that's what sinners do. They sin. And sinners don't belong in heaven. But now we hear that this guy Jesus has risen from the dead. And if that's the case, if Jesus was telling the truth all along about who he was and what he had come to do, then there's hope. Because if sin's greatest and most devastating result, namely death, has been conquered, then that means that our sin can potentially be completely erased. God can now, in the words of, of Romans 4, 5, justify the ungodly. He can rightfully look at sinners and say, not just yeah, you're a bad guy, but I'm going to let you off the hook. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you're not a bad guy at all. You're a good guy. You're a perfect guy. You're a holy guy. You're actually a saint. You're pure and spotless in my sight. Sin? What sin? I don't see any sin. And now you have access to all the joys of heaven and you have access to membership in my family and I have given you a new heart. And for the rest of your earthly life, you will be being cleansed from the inside out. 
And although sin for a while will still be part of your experience, it will no longer be who you are. It will now be something foreign to your nature. And one day when you see your Savior face to face, you will be like him. Because sin will be banished from your existence forever. This is what happens to you if and when the truth of Jesus' resurrection hits you in the heart like a ton of bricks. And when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If this is happening to you today, by the way, if you just sense today that something's going on in your heart and God is prompting you in your heart to move from head knowledge to heart belief, then you can come to Jesus today. You can come to Jesus today. The end of that passage in Romans says, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Embrace the one who loved you so much that he died in your place. He has said this as well in John. He said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. You You can come to him in faith today. You know why? Because he's alive. He's alive. Let's pray as the worship team comes and we'll close with one more song. Jesus, we know that you hear us right now. We know that you're in this room with us. We know that you're indwelling us by your Holy Spirit. We know that you walked out of that grave actually and physically and literally. And that one day we'll receive a resurrection body, those of us who believe in you, that is different than the one we battle with here. Thank you for the wonderful promise that comes from your resurrection. Thank you that our sin is is paid for in full. It is finished. It can never bother us again. And one day it will be banished from our existence forever. And we will find ourselves in your presence and in each other's presence for all eternity, praising you, enjoying your presence, enjoying your beautiful new creation, and learning to love you like you love us. For anyone here today, who is struggling with that decision or feels that today is a special day and that God's doing something in your heart right now, let me ask you to talk to somebody that you came with or someone that you know has a relationship with Jesus and tell them what's going on. They can pray with you. You can come talk to me if you want to after the service. I'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions you might have. Jesus died for you. Jesus was buried for you. Jesus rose again for you. And Jesus wants to come back for you. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen.